This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 95. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey everyone, this is Michael Blanc. I'm really excited you're here to learn with me about apartment building investing. This episode is a little more of a cautionary tale about multifamily investing. I have a guest, uh, Nathan Tabor, with me today who kind of talks about his story of how he kind of accidentally got with multifamily, got a little lucky, got into it, and almost lost a shirt on that second deal and almost put him out of business. And I remember my first deal was very, very similar and that when I got into it, it did not turn out so well at all. The first two years was a, a complete disaster and nightmare. And sometimes this happens. Uh, but two things about that in general is that your learning curve accelerates so much more when things don't go quite right. And number two, with multifamily, they almost always, in fact, actually, I would say always turn out okay. There's something about multifamily that's so stable and so fundamentally strong that even with challenges, given enough hustle and time, it writes the ship. It is really cool. So Nathan talks about his early experiences, kind of why he got started a little by accident and where it went from there and the challenges that he had and the lessons that he learned from that that now made him the full-time investor that he is. And before we get started, I want to let you know that I'm having my second live event, in-person event, coming up April 27th, this year of 2018. And what you're going to do in that workshop is going to be, you're going to experience what it's like to do your first deal. So in that, in that two days... You're going to work in small groups and you're going to learn and experience what it's like to do your first deal. You're going to be buying a 69 unit in small groups. You're going to find it, analyze it. You're going to make offers, get it on a contract. There's going to be some twists and turns along the way under due diligence. You're going to raise the money for it. You're going to get financing for it. And you're hopefully going to close and cash a nice acquisition fee check. So that's coming up April 27th. Uh, to find out more about that is themichaelblanc.com forward slash summit. It's the Financial Freedom Summit forward slash summit. Or you can go to themichaelblanc.com and click on event. And that's coming up on April 27th. So check that out as well. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Nathan Tabor. Here we go. Hey, Nathan, welcome to the show today. Hey, Michael, thanks for having me here. I appreciate you having me on your show. Awesome. Just give us a, a quick two-minute uh, background on you before we get into your story. Yeah, sure. Uh, 44 years old, live in a little town called Kernersville, North Carolina, right outside of Winston-Salem. Been married for 14 years, have a 13-year-old daughter. Grew up in a little town in Owens Crossroads, Alabama. It's a little poke and plum town. By the time you drive through town, roll your window down, poke your head out, you're plumb through town. So a little tiny, but you know, got involved in various businesses coming out of school. I've owned a car lot, a buy here, pay here. I've owned a media company, a email company, consulting, work-life balance type, but got involved in real estate a little over 11 years ago. That's pretty much what I do full time. Also, I've got a few other little things on the sides that I do. So it's just been a, a great 44 years. You know, if I could do some things different, probably would. I definitely would. You know, try to learn from the mistakes we've made, duplicate our successes, and leave the mistakes to the side. Well, that's right. And uh, yeah, I never say mistakes. It's simply just uh, lessons that makes us the person that we are. So that's really cool. So you've done a bunch of stuff. True entrepreneur. I love that. I've done a whole bunch of stuff also until I kind of find my groove a little bit. So that's all cool. You're forgiven for that, right? Tell us why you got into real estate at all. What was going on in your life? We're like, ah, let me try this real estate thing. Or let me, maybe you had to do the real estate. Why did you decide to do that? I am one that's probably the unique story. I didn't set out to get involved in real estate. 
I was running another business and a gentleman walked in and said, hey, I've got an 18 unit complex that I've got to sell in 28 days to 30 days or the bank's going to take it back. I didn't know him. He didn't know me. I still don't know why he stopped by, but he left me the information and I looked at it and kind of being entrepreneurial mindset, you know, I I ran some numbers and I was like, well, you know, that sounds interesting. The first five banks I went to said no. And these banks, I mean, I had done a lot of business with them. They were just like, you know, that's got too much deferred maintenance or it's not occupied, not enough cash. There was some reason they said no. And someone finally said, hey, you know, go down to this small little community bank and talk with Jack Smith. So I called Jack, set up an appointment. And he said, this is 11 years ago. He said, two things, bring your wife and bring one year tax return. Like that's an odd request, you know, to go meet with a banker. And, and oh yeah, it was, you know, he sat down at his desk and he asked a couple questions about the apartment, but most of them were, were about me and asking my wife what type of guy I was. And it's kind of a weird meeting. And all of a sudden with no warning, he just turns in his chair in his backs to us. So we're sitting across his desk. I'm looking at my wife, like, what do we do? Do we get him leave? Do we say something? And about five minutes later, he turns around and hands me a letter that states that they can close within the time frame, 100% financing and 100% renovation. Bizarre. Bizarre. That's I mean, totally bizarre. All around from how I learned of the deal to closing the deal. Bizarre. So you kind of stumbled into the multifamily thing. You were doing a bunch of other stuff. So you kind of stumbled this. You said, hey, let's go for it. What happened? I bought two houses at the time. My first starter home, I sold it in the house I currently live in. I did have a background. My dad was a painter growing up and he had done a few minor renovations here and there on various things, but not flipped anything that way. But I knew people in the construction industry and called up and got bids and started renovating. And as soon as we started renovating the 18 unit, there was a 12 unit right behind that originally had been part of the complex and at some time had been divided and sold. And the owner came and said, hey, do you want to buy these 12 units? They're 100% vacant. (laughs) I was like, you know, sure. So I went back to Jack and said, hey, could you add these 12? And he said, sure. And we added. And so within the 30 units now, I had a little over $500,000 in the purchase and the renovation budget to do these 30 units. 100% financing. 100% financing, which just doesn't happen these days. 100% financing and 100% renovation. So I had no money in the deal whatsoever. That's pretty cool. Didn't have any money, didn't have to raise it. 100% bank financing. Great. Now what happens? So spent eight and a half months renovating, leasing, but looking back, something that I did that I You know, hindsight was like, wow, this is really smart on my end, but it was just something I didn't at the time didn't think about. I listed the complex for sale about two months after I bought and I put it at a sliding scale and said, if it's 50 percent occupied and renovated, it's this price. And if it's 60, 70, 80 up to, you know, full renovation. And so somebody came along at the eight and a half month mark when it was about 80% occupied, but 100% renovated and purchased the complex. And I made a little over $250,000 pre-tax off my first deal. Nice. Nice little flip here. You're like, this is pretty cool. I was like, this is pretty cool. But you know, shortly after that, I was at a, a friend's house who developed a lot of food lions, grocery stores in the South. And she's a state senator now. And But she asked me at the time, she said, Nathan, what was the cap rate on the deal you did? 
I'm standing there, I'm thinking, you know, cap rate roof, that little <laughs> ridge at the top. Sometimes they have the vent. And like 30 <laughs> seconds into it, Michael, she's like, Nathan, please tell me you didn't buy a piece of commercial property and not know what the cap rate is. And I was like, Joyce, to be honest with you, I have no idea. You know, from that point, I started to look at other deals, but also started looking at, you know, learning about multifamily. And going back 11 years, there was not a lot of materials. There is now, but at the time, there wasn't a lot of materials on buying and selling multifamily. And so the second deal I did, I bought it, $225,000 deal, 24 units. Everything that went right on the first deal, it caught up of all the bad that didn't happen on the first deal and piled it all into the second deal. Well, that's because you didn't learn anything on the first deal. It went so smoothly. So you got to learn something. So what happened on the second one? On the second one, again, you know, it was a class C property. It was actually 100% vacant. I had been vacant for a number of years, but on a stabilization side, it was worth about five hundred and fifty to 600000 and it needed about $150,000 worth of renovations. So almost double of what I would have had in it. So great deal on paper. But the day I closed and went to pull my building permits, they said, no, you can't have your building permits. And I said, why? And they said, well, where your building is, the building right beside of it, when it was separated a few years earlier, killed the grandfathering of your building and that building. I said, okay, but what does that mean? I mean, I've got a document here from my attorney and I've got a document here from a surveyor that says I'm grandfathered in. And they said, yes, but they're wrong. (laughs) The setback when those buildings were built was 25 feet and the setback today is 40 feet. I said, what is setback? I mean, what do you, what do you mean? I said, well, the setback is for fire. How far the buildings have to be away from each other? I'm thinking like my gears are starting to turn now. There's a problem here and I couldn't get my building permits. And so I went to the attorney, I went to the surveyor, I, I went to my title insurance and filed a claim. Title insurance denied it. And then I started having to meet with the, you know, the city. What were the options? The options were to tear down half the building because once I lost the grandfathering, I had to bring everything up to code. So I didn't have enough parking spaces. I mean, it just quickly became a mass immersion in what you need to know about doing any type of real estate, really, because it could have been a house, it could have been vacant land, it could have been a commercial building. I found out real quick now, before I buy anything, the first thing I check is the zoning myself. I don't care how big the deal is or how small it is. I go down and get a letter, own letterhead, signed and dated, stamped, if they will, stating what that property is. So I spent the next 18 months. Of course, I know what happened now, but at the time, you know, it was just disaster written all over it. I ended up buying the building behind me. It was condemned. The people I bought it from were supposed to, you know, have it torn down. They didn't. They skipped and took all my money. So I had to wait 18 months for the city to tear the building down. It had asbestos in it. I mean, you name it, it went wrong. So it ended up costing me personally $150,000 more than I budgeted and 18 months of misery and stress because at the time I didn't see that I was going to get out of it. It had, you know, defaulting on the note written all over it. It had, you know, major consequences for me personally. 
you know, I was paying a mortgage on a property that was 100% vacant and the bank's calling me every week or two saying, hey, what's going on? And Michael, it was a mess. Yeah. Welcome to multifamily investing, Nathan. Ha! <laughs> Trial by fire, right? I went from being, you know, too big for my britches of like, oh my gosh, look what I did to, I don't know if I'll ever do real estate again. That's right. So what happened? Did it turn out okay or what happened? Yeah, finally, you know, ended up, I bought a tenth of an acre for $75,000. <laughs> Get the setback right. But the tenth of an acre had the other building setting on it. So I had to wait for it to be torn down. I had to put in a new parking lot. I ended up having to convert the 24 units to 12 units. So we had to reconfigure all the kitchens. We had to rewire everything. It actually is a complex I still own today. So I kind of learned my lesson on it. I see it, but I partnered with a local ministry who provides uh, housing and educational materials to homeless people or people coming out of jail who are trying to find a job, trying to find their footing. And they run it as a Christian transitional housing facility. That's great. So you're doing some good and you also have built an income, which is fantastic. So are you still own it today? You didn't lose it. And it probably makes a little bit of money. Makes a little bit of money. But you know, if anybody hears anything, yeah, the money, it was headed down the wrong path. All right. and, and thankfully, I had the resources and the ability to get it back on the path. And it turned out to be good. It turned out to be a good investment. It turned out to be profitable in the long run. All right. Did you learn a lesson and, and finally quit this multifamily thing or did you want more? No, I wanted more. So I bought <laughs> another. I've done 26 deals now in the last 11 years. <laughs> well, and, great. So why did you keep going? Let me ask you. You know, maybe, you know, somebody like this guy didn't really learn his lesson. Why in the world did you keep going? Well, for me, I'm a flipper, but I flip in two ways. You know, when you're buying a property that has massive deferred maintenance and high occupancy, you're not going to get a traditional bank loan. You're going to get a, you know, either a bridge loan or a construction loan, something that has a 12, 24, 36 month term to it. And then you got to pay it back. A lot of my, you know, start out as interest only because they didn't have money coming in. So I'd sit down with the bank and borrow more than I needed to put six or 12 months into reserves to cover mortgage, interest, insurance, and that till we got up and running. But for me, I also flip out to others, but I also flip to non-recourse so I take it from one LLC to another and flip it into my own name, into my own company, but I have still flipped it. And if you do your flipping right, you basically get all your money back that you have in the property because Fannie or a lot of these non-recourses, they'll do 80, 85% of loan to value. Well, if you've bought the property right, renovated it right, you can get most of your 20% down that you put into it back. That's right. That's right. So you're looking for value add stuff. Obviously, you're building massive value and then you're selling it or you're refinancing into non-recourse debt, which is, that's our favorite strategy also. I wouldn't call it flipping though, Nathan, because if you <laughs> if you refinance, it's not really flipping, right? You're still holding a bunch of stuff, right? So yes, you know, for me, everybody asks me what I do. I'm, I am at heart a real estate flipper, but I currently have three complexes, 168 units. Yeah. So I do keep, but I flipped them from one of my companies to another. So yeah. I got to stick with my, you know. That's right. My so you can still say you're flipping. Time. Yeah. God forbid that you're known as a buy and holder. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's cool. You're going to run my whole reputation, Michael. I know. So I know. Be- I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. All right. So that second deal, obviously, you didn't learn your lesson. What was the next deal you did? And how did that turn out? The third deal, I learned about how to vet financials on a complex. 
I just assumed when the rent roll said that there was $28,000 a month coming in, that there was $28,000 a month coming in. I mean, why would you think different, right? It says this rent roll is certified and it's signed with a date. So I went through the due diligence, you know, so I called all my physical things this time, anything HVAC or zoning or parking lot. I learned my lesson on that side. Now I learned my lesson on the paper side. Michael, when I closed that deal the first month, there were enough people in units to have paid $28,000 a month, but there was only $7,000 that came in. Uh, That's quite a shortfall. I learned immediately at that point that a rent roll per state law, per case law, or whatever they call it in the legal system, the rent roll is nothing more than a restating of what's in the lease. So Nathan Tabor lives in this unit. He signed the lease on this date. It expires on this date. And this is how much he should be paying a month. That's That's all I mean. Now, did you learn this lesson before you closed or after you closed? After I closed. That's lovely. Wow. Great. So you get into this thing and you get like three, four times less than what you think you're getting, which obviously is probably not enough to break even. What did you do? Well, so then, you know, you know, normally we plan for, you know, $28,000. Well, maybe there's a 20% fudge here. So we plan on, you know, taking off four or 5,000 because maybe people are paying slow or that, but I did not plan on having to cover 20,000 ish out of pocket each month. So basically just had to rework my budget, had to rework my numbers, had to talk with the bank, had to go lower some payments for each month with them and just learned a lesson again that, you know, you need to know what you're doing. You know, ended up, it worked out. I did have to sue the guy who I bought the complex from because there were some other fraudulent things that had been done in the packet itself. Nobody ever wins except the lawyers when you sue. So my advice is if you can avoid lawyers, work it out with someone, you know, swallow your pride and your anger and and try to work it out with them. Ended up, sold that complex to an IBM executive, made a little over $800,000 on the deal. So it turned out okay, but it taught me then that just because it's in writing and just because it says certified or it's from an accountant or a CPA firm, the only way you can verify actual money coming in is bank statements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so true. Now, what's interesting is, first of all, that you're learning by fire here for sure. That's number one. But it oddly, and this is not the only instance I'm seeing that multifamily, even when there's problems and sometimes there are, most of the time it writes itself. Like it's an, an uncanny thing. I don't know. Given enough time and and enough hustle, it all comes out in the end, which I find fascinating. So you made some good money on this one, even though it was, I'm sure, a disaster, you know, the first year or so getting into this stuff. You know, so in that situation, you know, it became kind of what I learned off the second one. If you find the problem, you can't really wait to resolve it. The second deal I had done, I had waited on some things to see, oh, maybe I could work this out. By the time the third deal came along, I mean, it's the day that I found out the rent roll wasn't right, we went down to the courthouse and filed evictions on everyone who had not paid. Right. Instead of waiting 30 days to see if they were going to pay, you know, I started immediately laying out a written plan to get out of the situation I was in. Yeah, that's right. You know, we're all going to find ourselves in problems, right? In multifamily. That's no right. Matter what to some degree or another, and I deserve that we learn more when there's challenges, right? It just makes us better investors, right? And, and clearly this was a yeah. case. You got you got maybe a little lucky with the first one. It's got like having your first kid 
and it's great, sleeps through the night, never screams, you know, does what you ask him to do. And you're like, this is easy. I'm going to have myself another one. And then all of a sudden, the other one comes like, holy cow. I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. That's why we only had one kid. She slept through the <laughs> night and we were done. <laughs> <laughs> so the good news is you're learning a lot. And I remember I did my first deal and I had both of these things happen on that one deal. And it was like, I'm not sure if this multifamily thing is right for me either. It was like, I was regretting the decision because the first 18, 24 months was a disaster, kind of not unlike what you're talking about. And it required hustle and eventually write itself. And last year we sold it for twice as much as we bought it for. But holy cow, I mean, I missed my projections by a land mile for the first 24 months, but I learned a lot, right? I mean, that one deal really probably accelerated my learning. It sounds like the same thing happened to you. What are some other things that some other lessons you learned from subsequent deals that you've done? What you touched on there of, you know, learning from your mistakes and doing that. I mean, that was the biggest thing of, you know, going in and making sure you have good list, that you have what you're looking for. My biggest thing now for me is kind of become when you get that little feeling in the pit of your stomach that something's not right. I used to let the, oh, I can make this amount of money per month, you know, cash flow. If it's at 93%, this is what I'm going to make. And I let that override that little feeling that something's not right here in the due diligence, either in the the physical side or the paperwork and digging in to find out. You know, it's Michael, so kind of like the philosophy or mindset of people today. You know, if we're hungry, we just drive through a drive through and get something to eat. And I tell people, I know you do too, from reading your materials and listening to your podcast, you can make a lot of money doing multifamily. You can set up a monthly cash flow that can make you, you know, independently wealthy that you don't have to depend on anyone else or another job. But if you don't do that foundational work right and get in there and roll your sleeves up and learn the business, it's going to be a long road getting to that monthly cash flow. It was a little bit for you. It sounds like to me, looking back on it, said you're some things you would do differently. And this maybe applied to your entire career. I don't know. But with multifamily, what would you have done differently if you could you know, wind back the clock a little bit? I do class C. So I'm doing 35, 40, 45-year-old complexes, normally in a... Trying to think of the right word, you know, it's not the greatest part of town. The thing I would do different would be to found out some of these things beforehand. Maybe gotten the mentor or coach or someone that could have maybe held my hand and walked me through some of these things that were really obvious. I mean, they weren't hidden underneath the rock type thing. These were common knowledge stuff. I just didn't have that knowledge. Right. So that would be the thing I would do different would be, you know, get my arms around as much as I could or seek advice from others on questions that I didn't know the answer to. Yeah. So knowledge probably would have prevented some of the bigger mistakes. You're still going to make some mistakes, but, you know, you tell me a mentor and some knowledge would prevent some of the bigger mistakes. Like, for example, verifying income. Like, I mean, I made the same mistake, but at least I caught it before closing. I had the same thing. The collections were 50% of rent roll. And when I caught it, you know, the owner said, oh, they're going through tough times. They'll pay. I said, well, but they haven't. <laughs> so I said, yeah. we can either terminate the contract or you can guarantee me a year's worth of these tenants' rents and ended up doing that. At least I caught it because otherwise it would have been a complete nightmare to do that. So I think education prevents the bigger mistakes. People will still make some of them for sure. Now, let me ask you something though. You must be asking, why were you doing all this stuff? So I know you kind of got pushed into multifamily kind of by accident a little bit, but then after that, it was all your fault, right? It was like totally intentional. I know, I'm going right. to do this again. And then you kind of had problems and you kept on doing At that point, did multifamily turn into a strategy of some sort? And if so, what were you trying to do? Why were you doing it? 
Yeah. So, you know, becomes the strategy for me was how many units did I need to create a monthly cash flow that would allow me to live the type of life I wanted to. For me, also, the other strategy on that was how many could I also flip? So kind of I had two running strategies and it basically came down to which complex would I sell was whichever one sold first. So if I were doing two deals at the same time, they were both on the market at the premium price I wanted. And if I sold one of them, then the other one went into my portfolio. Gotcha. It did turn into a strategy for you to basically do whatever you want, financial freedom kind of thing. When did you realize that? At what point did you kind of go, huh, this could work? When did that happen? Probably the fifth or sixth deal when I started to learn about non-recourse fanny type notes that existed out there. The criteria that you had to meet to get into that. I met some brokers who helped handle that for you where they you know, charge you the 1% and started walking through what type of properties would I have to buy that would meet this criteria. That was really one of the big strategies there was the non-recourse. Right. So the first five you did, it's just like you're just flipping. You're like, I'm just going to make some money. Quick money. Yep. Quick money. Just in and out as fast as I could, you know, take the tax hit and use that money. Now, what also at the beginning happened to me, the first two deals I did were 100% renovation was covered by the bank, 100% purchase, 100% renovation. The third, fourth, fifth, sixth, as I started moving down in my deals, the economy started changing and banks started wanting 5% down and 10% down, 15% down to 20% down. So part of my flipping strategy also became to do deals. I either had to flip a deal to generate the income to you know pay myself and have money to do the next deal or bring in investors. Now, you've done a lot of businesses in your life, right? And I've done a bunch of stuff also, tried different things. Some worked, some better than others, some didn't. Why do you like multifamily so much? There's two sides of multifamily that I've come to enjoy. The monetary side, looking at where can you make money? How can you create monthly income cash flow that's not dependent on you working 40 hours a week? And real estate really does that. I've got several friends. One of my friends that owns over 500 single family homes. They spent like $76,000 last year just in gas and tires and mechanical, keeping their service maintenance trucks up and running, going to those 500 homes. I'm like, why don't you just sell all those 500 by a 500 unit complex? You'd save $76,000 in gas minimum. So, you know, that's, you know, the multifamily site. The other is you really get to help people. In the industry, the class C that I'm in, most of the time we get referred to as slumlords. It's kind of bottom kind of housing, but you can go in and you can renovate the units right. You can do the the work properly. You can service the maintenance calls when they come in. You can really help people who are in a, you know, unfortunate or a situation in their life that they didn't ask for. And I always found there was about 10 to 12, 15% of our tenants who they lied to you all the time or they stole the refrigerator. They did, but you know, 85, 90% of the people who lived in my complex, they were just looking for a safe, clean, reliable maintenance place to live. And at first, I'll be honest, when I got into this, that really wasn't a consideration. It was all, how can I make money? How can I, you know, get the cash flow coming in? And what I found is as I switched my focus to, I want to make sure I service the tenants the best that I can. Michael, you know what happens? Mm, You make more money. Well, you make more money because if you care about them, 
the natural side is they start to care about you. That's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. It's just funny. When you put money first, you, for some reason, make less of it. And when yeah. you don't, you somehow make more of it. it. It is an odd phenomenon. I've observed that with myself and others as well. You want a better relationship with your wife? Yeah. Put more into her, right? Yeah, that's right. From a human mindset, it doesn't make sense. But the same thing with apartments. If you want better paying tenants, be a better landlord. So you're talking to someone who says, Nathan, this is fantastic. You know, you're a full-time investor. You can do what you want. You can stop doing what, or keep doing what you want. How do I get what you did? What's your advice to someone sitting there going, I want to do what you do. How do I get started? So, you know, if you've not done it before and you're saying, I want to, you know, define your niche. What type of real estate investing do you want to do? You know, you and I were talking the other day on our first call together. It's like walking into an ice cream shop and saying, may I have a scoop of ice cream? Well, I mean, what kind of flavor do you want? You want cone or cup? So do you want to do multifamily? Do you want to do duplexes? Do you want to do, you know, 10 units or 20 units? Well, once you define your niche, how are you going to get the money? What bank is going to finance you or private lenders or bridge money? So you got to start putting in your foundation of what type of real estate investor you're going to be. That would be the first advice I would give anyone is, do you want to do it on the south side of town or the north side? You know, second then, Michael, you know, put your business plan together and it can be one page. Before you go talk to an investor and ask them for money, identify what you want to do and where you want to do it. Because if you don't, I'm 100% of the time the investor is going to say no, unless it's your mother and she really loves you. Right? right? So those would be the first two, define your niche and define your business plan. You know, people immediately say, well, I want to get to a, a $5 million portfolio, but you've not done the first deal. Back up a little bit, have your vision in your mind of what you want to do, but do a $100,000 duplex. Buy it, live on one side and rent the other side out. And if you don't have the resources, you don't have the means, do what you can. Michael, too many people say, well, if I can't do everything I want to do, I'm not going to do anything. That in this industry and in life, you're not going to get anywhere. You got to start somewhere and build up. I mean, you didn't start out doing what you're doing today. It's taken hard work and dedication and time and planning and strategizing and at times partners. A lot of, time, a lot of people don't want any partners because they don't want to share the, the income or the revenue. But sometimes you have to have a partner to get a deal done. That's exactly right. A lot of different things we can do. I think the main thing is you really got to get started with something. And there's something powerful about that first deal. I remember when your story, your first deal, you said, hey, you know, immediately you bought the 12 unit next to it. And I think that first deal is so powerful that your advice about at least buying a duplex actually accelerates the process considerably. Because what happens is when people know that you're actually buying something, even if it's only a duplex, you become a magnet for other deals. Yeah. Oh, the broker saw that you bought something. Well, I'm going to recommend this guy here. You also become a magnet for money, right? Because people's like, well, this guy's buying stuff. Well, I want to participate in that, right? So really, the focus should be for everybody to focus on that deal. It doesn't matter what income you're trying to replace or what portfolio you want is, hey, let's just talk about your first deal. Yeah. Talk about the first deal, but know what that first deal is. That's right. So when you're talking to someone, I want to do a $50,000 deal or a $200,000 deal. You know, the worst thing to do is to call up a broker and say, I'm looking for a deal to buy. Do you think they're going to spend much time looking for something for you? If you call up and say, I'm looking for a, a duplex to a quadplex and I've got $150,000 to invest and I want to do it in this area, that broker is going to go to work to find you a deal. That's right. Yeah. If you try that on the broker, the first script you just provide, they'll ask you for a proof of funds within like the first 60 seconds. And that'll be the yeah. end of that conversation. 
Exactly. They're done. And so then you as a person, as a quote, real estate investor, you feel deflated because you're like, oh, well, they didn't buy into what I want to do. But how could they buy into what you wanted to do when you didn't tell them what you wanted to do? You gave them the 30,000 foot perspective and everyone has that. You know, I meet all people all the time who want to be a real estate investor, but they can't tell you what they want to do, where they want to do it. They don't have an investor packet. They don't have a business plan. You know, I got lucky. I blessed, if you want to call it that as well, to do a deal like I had done. But I also had a track record with, at that point, you know, 18 or 19 other businesses. But even at that, Michael, I had one business. We ran $80 million gross through one bank in six years on an online business that I owned part of. And they told me no to a $250,000 deal. Amazing. So I was told no by five banks that I had done serious banking with and had a record of successful businesses, and they still told me no. So even though I had my niche and I had success in other businesses, then I had to go find a bank that my niche matched up to their niche. So just because you go to one bank and they tell you no, and you've got a good plan, go to the next bank. And the next and the next, you know, if you've got 15 banks in your area, go to all 15. Because hopefully one of those banks also has been in their meetings going, hey, we want to do more of this, and it matches up to what you want to do. So I love that you have this freedom to do what you want. I can sense you still like the art of the deal in itself, but it does free you up to do other stuff. What are you really excited about right now? The passion for me at this point in my life is helping others, and specifically based on my story, you know, money doesn't solve problems. Money is a tool that you can use to make your life easier at times. But if your focus becomes money, it won't be long before that's all you're focusing on. That unfortunately happened in my life. And I try to live as a Christian. I try to be a godly man. But that, Michael, that really consumed me. And I kind of became one of those that where people say, well, you know, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be one of those. And that was me. You know, people complimented me by saying, oh, you'd make a great attorney. They didn't mean that as a compliment. It was because I could argue and I could win the battle, but I was losing the war. So one of my big focuses now is kind of work-life balance, going into corporations or one-on-one, you know, coaching, consulting, or, you know, giving information out for free of make sure you have the right balance in your life. If you're a Christian man, then be a Christian man first, you know, serve God, serve your family serve your wife, serve your family, then serve your business. Kind of like that earlier, you know, if you treat your tenants right over trying to make money, you're going to make more money. And so if you want to have, you know, happiness and peace and joy and harmony in your life, but you're not doing things the way they should be done, you might get those for a moment or a season, but you can't maintain them. And that was me. I would find moments of happiness or stability but it didn't last because it was based on money. And it's common sense. I mean, put your phone down for 30 minutes a night, turn it off, put it in a drawer and spend time with your wife and your kids. It's amazing what it does for your relationship. Life balance is a challenge. Even people who have, you know, have covered their expenses, they just, they love it. They love it so much and they just keep doing more and more. And they realize that if they don't do more, well, they're not going to make more. But at one point, you know, what difference does it make, right? So especially for entrepreneurs, this is a real challenge for us, right? Because we know we can always do more, but then you lose sight of why we do this in the first place. So it's an interesting problem that we have once we achieve a certain amount of financial freedom is actually doing that what's really important to us. Yeah. 
the sooner we can find that mentality of, yes, do everything you can to a point and then make sure you're taking care of yourself, your health and those around you. And if you're a Christian, your relationship with God. And it's amazing how, as you do that, how much more productivity you get on your work site. Because you don't have all this chirping and noise of, why don't you spend time with me? Or why aren't you doing this? Because you're doing those things. It's even hard to explain. By putting things in the right order, you remove so much stress and anxiety and things that go on normally because you're doing them the right way. But from the entrepreneurial mindset, I've been there. It doesn't. It's like, no, I got to do this. At 10 o'clock at night on a Friday night, I've got to be on my phone because an investor might call me or somebody might email me about a deal. You know what? Looking back over the years, how many times at 10 p.m. on a Friday night, I got a call or an email about a deal? None. And if I did, it wouldn't have hurt to wait until Monday morning because they had turned their phone off for the weekend anyway. It's good to have this kind of perspective, Nathan. Thank you for reminding us of that. How can people connect with you if they want to find you? Yeah, so my website's pretty easy. It's my name. It's Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N, Tabor, that's T-A-B as in boy, O-R.com. Got some various information there about my personal story and some of the speaking and uh, consulting I do for businesses and individuals. I thank you for uh, sharing your experience, your lessons learned, and your perspective on life. So thanks again, Nathan. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I appreciate all you do and all the, the good education you give to people out there. So I really enjoy these interviews, guys, because I'm learning just like you are. I love learning from people who have done things. And every time I have one of these, I learn something, right? So, you know, Nathan's story is fabulous because he just kind of did stuff. I think there's a lot of, I mean, he probably would do some things differently. One of us is he would probably do some education to prevent some of the bigger mistakes. And that's why we have online courses and coaching to kind of help with that. But the bottom line is this, yes, you should get those things, but it should not be so that you're not taking action. I mean, there's people, there's course junkies that just take one seminar after seminar and they spend thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. And at one point, you got to stop learning and start doing, okay? So I definitely encourage you to start to learn and educate yourself, but at one point, you just got to start doing. Now, in Nathan's case, he didn't do any kind of learning at all. He learned on the job, and he made some major, major mistakes. I did the same thing early on as well, especially on the restaurant side. If you've heard my story, major, major, massive mistakes on that side. And so he probably would do that again. But the thing I like about Nathan, he just kind of did it, right? He saw an opportunity and he just kind of went for it. He's walked through these open doors. And sometimes, you know, God just opens these, these doors and, you know, who am I to close them, right? Yes, you have to use some discernment, but, but really there's a door and an opening. Why don't you just go walk through it until it's closed? And that's kind of what Nathan did. He kept walking through these doors. And yes, he made some mistakes. But the thing I really like about multifamily is it, it has a tendency to work itself out, given with, obviously with some hustle. But the business is so stable and so strong that with, with some effort, you can right the ship. And that's what I really, really like about it. And that's what happened in, in Nathan's case as well. It's just things turn out in the end with multifamily. So I really want to encourage you, yes, there's a cautionary tale here. Everything's not going to be hunky-dory all the time. But really... The, the probability of success with it is very, very high. I see this over and over again, especially when, when the people's first deals don't work out kind of the way uh, that they planned. The second thing is, not even prompt Nathan this, but he talked about the first deal. And you guys hear me talk a lot about the first deal. And because it's so true, it's this universal phenomenon that I call the law of the first deal, which says you do a first deal of any size, including a duplex, you'll be financially free in three to five years. And Nathan talked about that. He goes, my gosh, you know, before you give up, 
go ahead and do a duplex. Do something, okay? Because it starts you on that track and it triggers a law of the first deal. So really the key lesson is, yes, you want to quit your job. You want to shore up your retirement, whatever your goals are. But really, really, really focus on your first deal. This is why we focus everything on our educational platform on helping you do your first deal. That's why we have the syndicated deal analyzer. We have the ultimate guide to buying apartment buildings. We have coaching if you need that as well. But we really focus everything on your first deal because I know if I can help you do your first deal, not only do you not need us anymore, but you're literally one or two years away from quitting your job. And I see this over and over again. So I'm really, really excited about the possibilities for multifamily for you. And if you haven't done so already, make sure that you download my free ebook. It's called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building Deal. And it's on themichaelblanc.com forward slash ebook, as well as our other resources is there as well. So hope you guys found that useful. If you found it useful, leave me a review on iTunes. Really love that. The more reviews there are, the more people find the podcast. And we really want to help people become financially free with real estate and obviously with apartment building. So really appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.